What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Live Free Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Maxwell. Today's guest is Joshua Zimmerman of The Silent Comedy. Um, I just got to go right off and start saying how uh, jacked up the audio got on this one. I've been working on this documentary with Mike Giant for a long time, which I've been talking about forever. And uh, we did a sort of joint documentary shoot slash live free podcast thing where uh jeffrey durkin from the bread truck films crew mic'd us up and and had us sit down and do an interview in this really cool uh, uh speakeasy in the back of this bar restaurant in downtown um give a shout out to them i should up up post up the restaurant and the blog um i better write that down because i'll fucking forget um, but yeah, I want to go, what the fuck is the name of it? It's called, uh, Neighborhood Downtown, or Watch It Be Community or something. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Neighborhood Downtown, and they have a, a cool little private area in the back, which there's actually pictures up on the Facebook and, and all that, if you go check it out. Um, so we ended up having our, the mic set up from, uh, that, uh, that Jeff uses for his films. And so when I got the audio from him, because uh, he obviously kept the video, I didn't need it, it came as two separate tracks. And when I laid the tracks into GarageBand, they uh, they don't really match up. So it's like you try to put it together and just have it play as one thing, and it uh, or as one solid track, and there's like a, a, an echo where the where the words go over one another. And so basically what I had to do was clip all of Joshua's answers out of my audio and then clip all of my answers out of his audio. So it was really, and we had a really, really long in-depth conversation. Obviously the, uh, the editing has been a disaster <laughs> and, not, and not so much a disaster, but just really uh, time consuming. Where I'm used to being able to just sort of edit one track. <clears throat> With this one, it was, it was, I've already listened, it's like as if I've listened to the interview six times already. So, what's going to happen, because this was a two-hour interview, I'm going to break it up into two parts and do the first part here. And because of all the confusion there, or, you know, just because of the audio editing issues... There's some weird overlaps where you'll like hear an echo. Oh, and one other issue too, <laughs> since we're talking about audio issues, um, Joshi's microphone for some reason only picked up the right side. So typically the audio will have a right side and a left side. So that if you change the uh, the balance to the left, you'll hear all out of the left speaker. You change the balance to the right, you hear all out of the right speaker. So if you were to change the balance all the way to the left, all you're not going to hear Josh at all, or vice versa. One of the ways you wouldn't hear him at all, um, at least in my editing, maybe somehow the program, when it turns into an MP3, will magically equalize everything, but I can't be certain. So you're going to hear me out of both your left and right speakers. Then when Josh answers, there's a likelihood that he is just going to be on the left-hand side. So prepare yourself for that. Again, I'm sorry, Joshi. I'm sorry. We had I'm really excited about this one because we had a great conversation, and uh, towards the end, it really got 
uh, kind of hard to get the the interviews to match up, and I I lost part of one part, and it got it got dicey. So uh, I'm gonna do my best to to bring it back strong for part two, but it's gonna take me a while to do that part two because I don't have the patience. The podcasts keep piling up. I have a few more that are on deck to uh, get done, so I need to get on with this thing. Um, so. With all that said, if you haven't turned this off yet, now that you've been listening to me rant for almost five minutes about how poor my audio quality is, my sound is great, actually. Josh and I talk about uh, Orange County, giving up possessions, India, Hinduism, Islam, goat heads, Afghan little boy prostitutes, uh, shit, Blathosogen, blessings, the temple, preacher son, Nepal, Pleasure Principle, and the Rush of Live Shows. And then a whole bunch of other things that will that will make it into part two. So, since I've blabbed my mouth off enough already, uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Mr. Joshua Zimmerman. In the Skull Room? Yeah. All right, I just want to preface this thing in, so that my, my Live Free podcast listeners know that we are being recorded right now. We are filming this for the uh, working class documentary that uh, Mr. Jeff Durkin and the, the Bread Truck Films crew are doing. My wire keeps hanging out. Um, so thanks for doing the show. Appreciate it. Um, let's talk about your early life. Um, where were you born at? I was born in Carson City, Nevada, which is the capital of Nevada. That's the only reason it's on the map, because it's a tiny, worthless little town. Isn't there, doesn't they gamble in Carson? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, th- I think the gambling's legal in all of Nevada, because that's the only way they could get people to live there. I think I went through there one time on the way to Tahoe, like, going to Tahoe and coming back yeah. to Mammoth. Yeah, I, uh, my parents moved from Tahoe to Carson City, and then I was born there. Oh, nice. Did they so grow up they, in Tahoe, or? No, no, they grew up, uh, my mom is from Montana, and my dad has lived everywhere. My dad has a real crazy life story. But my brother was born in Alaska. You have one brother? Yeah. Um, so you guys grew up in Carson? Uh, we lived there till I was four, and then we moved to Huntington Beach, Orange County. Okay. And then I, I consider that I grew up in Huntington Beach because we were there from when I was four to when I was 12. Mm-hmm. And then you guys, you guys up and got out of the country, right? Yeah. How, how did that come about? My dad had this kind of life vision for a long time of wanting to kind of take his calling to the, to the other countries. Uh-huh. And... Um, at some point, my dad is a pastor, and uh, he had this vision of, of doing his kind of evangelistic calling in a different way than most people because the line between um, evangelism and kind of social proselytization like kind of gets really blurred. Yeah. So a lot of people are trying to go like make Americans of all these people, and it really something Especially my dad was angry that about. Overseas. Yeah, it has that sort yeah. of like tainted sort of. Exactly. So he wanted to do it in a different way, and um, as they started to get into uh, the practice of pulling that off, he realized that a lot of these places you had to be a doctor 
to do any work. Um, it's really gnarly in a lot of places, and the only, the only way you can really get access is to be a doctor. So he got his doctorate in naturopathy and holistic medicine. Mm -hmm. And then his vision started to really split into two coexisting things, which was be able to set up a clinic to help the local people in a way that was like sustainable and affordable right. for them, if not free, um, and do it from an herbal standpoint rather than coming in with a bunch of allopathic medicine and kind of screwing with the natural balance so of things. So are these, uh, are, are you guys going to like third world type yeah. areas or, or really yeah. impoverished? Yeah, the, the concept was to, so they did all this research and they had actually like a, it's kind of a longer story, but they had all this criteria of people that they wanted to target, like people groups. And um, most of them, based on the research were, there's a huge concentration in India. Is that where you went to first? We went to uh, Thailand first. So you're, you're, how old are you when you? 12. You're 12 and you yeah. bounce the OC. Well, at first right? we sold all of our possessions, which was step number one. Uh, we put. How did that go as a, as a 12 year old? It was you... frustrating. I was actually a huge bitch for at least the first half of our trip to my family. I yeah. was like really angry little kid because well, I was real angry. Strong, they have such a strong attachment to their possessions, like yeah, toys and, and friends, you know. Yeah, yeah, right. And with, uh, you know, basically growing up in Orange County, it's a real possession-oriented kind of, yeah, kind of community. So it was rough, uh, but we we sold everything that we couldn't fit in these kind of trunks. We put like the the stuff that was most sentimentally important to us in trunks and each of us had one of those they're kind of like you know ship trunks mm -hmm. and put those in storage and sold everything else car got rid of our house um, every other possession that we had so that was the first step and then we flew to Korea and had just a short stop there then we went to Thailand and the Thailand portion was actually more of like a break like a transition period. And we knew that India was going to be rough. We knew that some of the other countries were going to be pretty rough on us. And so we wanted to have almost like a vacation starting out. So Thailand was mostly like scuba diving and stuff. And then we went to India. And, and that's when it, it all got really real. Because yeah, India is yeah, a rough, yeah. a rough continent. All right, so you're, you're 13, you get, to, you get to India. Yeah. Uh, what kind of crazy culture shock is that? India is real, really, really intense. We tried to prepare ourselves for it, or my dad tried to prepare us more. Uh, we watched films about it and uh, read about the culture a lot, but I really feel that nothing can prepare you for it. You just have yeah. to go. We well, um, guys had to stick out like a sore thumb, right? Oh, yeah. And my dad is a good two feet, two and a half feet taller than, than, than the average person, <laughs> which is great in a crowd. It's also great for an intimidation factor because oh, yeah, things right. get a little gnarly over there and yeah. all he really had to do is just like get in someone's face and we were pretty safe. Yeah. But uh, Winston Churchill said about India that it's such a land of extremes that anything you say about it, the exact opposite is true. <laughs> and I really feel that way yeah. because it's an incredibly beautiful and it's incredibly ugly and, and uh, it's peaceful in ways and it's extremely treacherous and dangerous in other ways. We were there during a time too of um, there's always unrest 
But we were there during an interesting time because uh, elections happened while we were there. Mm -hmm. And elections are very uh, combustible kind of thing. So we were up in the north, which is the most contentious region. We were right by the border of Kashmir. And this, the war in Kashmir has been going on for a long time, Pakistan and India duking it out. So when the elections were going to happen, the guys in our hotel said, deadbolt your doors. Don't answer them for anything. Stay in there all day. Wow. And um, lots of people get killed in the process of the elections. So in a lot of ways, it, the, the side with the least fatalities normally kind of comes out ahead. Well, are they still battling, like, imperial rule? No. Or is it, uh, like, inner Muslim sex? Uh, it's Not Muslim sex. <laughs> Muslim sex. Muslim Interesting. Sex. That's a whole different In a topic. Small room. Uh, it sounds. <laughs> no, it's a lot of it is is Muslim versus Hindu. In India, um, they're not not huge fans of each other. And while we were there, there was also so the new government that came into power. Um, on the front of it was really pro change and pro Westernization of the country, but in the kind of back end they're really against it. So we were spending time with a lot of missionaries there, yeah. and it got really dicey. The government started funding groups under the table who would go and uh, take like a convent and rape and kill all the nuns. Uh, they were burning homes for the, uh, homes for lepers and stuff that Westerners had set up. They would yeah. burn them to the ground. They, uh, an Australian missionary and his two sons, they burned him alive in a car. With so, you know, you, we saw a lot of that stuff going on probably at the same period of time in South America, yeah. in Nicaragua. And totally. And uh, Indonesia has been that way for a long yeah. time. It just doesn't get in the, uh, in the news as much over here until it really explodes. Yeah, well, it's going to be Chomsky. Yeah, exactly. Or they'll, uh, the way they'll, they'll say it a lot of times is a little different. They'll say sometimes that Westerners were killed uh, with suspected espionage. Nine times out of ten, it was missionaries. Yeah. They'll go in in India, what they were doing at the time. I mean, I haven't been there in, you know, 15 years nearly. But what they were doing at the time was they'd go into a village and take the missionaries, and then they would ask around, like, who had the most involvement with them in the village. Then they'd take them all and just execute them. So uh, it was getting weird, and we, in the north, it was getting really difficult for us to continue to travel. We were trying to get on a train one time, and it ended up just never coming. We found out later that someone, a group had barricaded the tracks and started executing people off the train. So it was, India is harsh in that way. Every day is kind of a different, and then there's, in cities like Mumbai and Delhi, you just think you're in New York or anywhere. Um, but the rest of the country, then we got down to the south, and the south is awesome. Uh, very, very, very different than the north. Uh, Kerala, the state that we spent a lot of time in and we really enjoyed, every war that India's ever been a part of, they stand in objection to. In like the, in an official way, they write a big thing. Yeah, which thing seems like, the, uh, to, would, would fit more in line with uh, a Hindu philosophy or some of the yeah, religious philosophies yeah. that are intertwined. What's interesting is Hinduism is, is real interesting philosophically from an outside perspective and you think that it would follow certain lines. So like you learn about it in the States or people who are practitioners in the States talk to them and, and you go like, okay, I'm kind of getting where, where it goes and, and the greater picture of it 
philosophically and then in, in the country where it's the national religion, it was really different, extremely different. I really feel like if, if my worldview was uh, kind of in the reincarnation vein, I would really feel that you would take it as your responsibility to better your community and yourself and your environment while you're on the earth in whatever life form. That seems to follow to me, but yeah. the, the kind of a, um, despair that permeates India is heavy. It's really heavy. The caste system ends up, ends up giving people this mindset where they feel, you know, if, I push, if I'm pushing a broom in the airport, my children will also be doing this, and their children's children, and yeah. there's just no hope, and there's no reason to, to make anything better because we're never going to get out of it. Yeah. And uh, well, do you think? Do you think like it's interesting that that we have those systems in place in a lot of yeah. foreign countries, and we kind of pretend like that's not the case here yeah. because we have democracy and, and freedom of commerce or whatever that everyone. Ha perceivably has this shot to to get rich and, and yeah. blow up or whatever. But we kind of pretend like there isn't a, a, a class system. Yeah. Like we, we will say upper class and lower class, but we'll pretend as if those things are based on the amount of hard work that you put totally. in. And it really isn't. It's kind of that same yeah. way where it's it's like the, the king and the pauper. Yeah. Like. And we get fed though. We get fed that from when we're kids. You get fed that in America. Uh -huh. That kind of Every, you can be anything. You yeah. could be the president of the United States, and you're like, you probably can't, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's the same thing with the lottery. You give everyone that chance to buy that ticket to keep them placated a little bit. So you feel like you have a chance, you're not gonna rock the boat as much, because yeah. any day you might win that lottery. You know, and, and I feel like that's kind of the thing, whereas in a country that comes right out and just says it, like, you are this, and you'll always be this, um, the kind of like, public, I would describe it as almost like public despair it is really crazy. And um, I see why Mother Teresa did what she did and why she stayed there, because Calcutta is an, is an intense city. The first time I ever saw a dead body uh, just straight directly there was, was when we went to Calcutta. And we went to her home for the dying. They were actually carrying a person out right as we were walking in the door. And uh, people are actually like, actively dying on the street all the time while you're walking by. And um, that was a big kind of wake-up call. You know, we try to hide everything in this country. Mm -hmm. Someone starts to fail in their health too much, you take them somewhere. Yeah. So like we don't see it. Yeah. And uh, over there, it's just right in your face. And so I see why she felt uh, the need to give people a place to die with some kind of a dignity. and. Um, the other interesting kind of culture shock is like we went to temples. Um, there's a temple to Kali in Calcutta. Kali is, is the Hindu god of death and violence. And um, they still practice animal sacrifice all the time there. So there's like an altar in the, in the middle. It's completely covered in blood. Probably like 30 foot radius is covered in blood around it. And there's like 50 goat heads that have been freshly sacrificed all lined up on a table. and. Uh, People actually go part of their, their ritual, they go and put their heads in the kind of yoke of the altar. And um, that was interesting, to say well, the least, know, as a kid. For us, yeah, from us as a Western standpoint, we look at that as being like crazy, right? 
but we we see no no oddities in the fact that people say blessings before yeah. a meal of a slaughtered animal that just happened to be cooked and now you get to eat. It wasn't that that strange to me in a sense because you know growing up reading the Old Testament all the time uh -huh. it's pretty commonplace. Right. But then seeing it was different. Yeah. Like reading about it and seeing yeah, it are definitely sure. and then the smell, it's so intense. It, well, everything. The also, they have in that temple. Uh, in the worship of Kali, they use uh, child prostitutes and stuff. Uh -huh. That was that's weird, and uh, that was you weird for us. For um, in the Muslim worlds too. Oh, we're wrapping it. Uh, you guys can finish your talk. Oh, cool. But we'll need to reset shortly. Yeah. They like the little young. Uh, yeah. I'm reading a, a biography on uh, Alexander the Great right now. That comes up a lot in Macedonia. Yeah. Big deal too. Yeah. So, uh, but that to I, say, I to oh say yeah, go ahead. For, uh, before we get too far away from the blessings, um, the word "bless" comes from the Proto-Germanic word for, uh, "blathosogen." I mean, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, yeah, yeah. but it actually means to smear with blood. Yeah. So it's like it's that same thing. You're getting like your, sticking your head in the in the goat blood yeah. or you know whatever is is really no different. Than putting your hands together and praying and yeah. giving this blessing exactly. to this dead animal that you just slaughtered. Yeah, and in, in yeah, Africa they still drink the blood as a yeah. as a ritualistic thing too. And uh, yeah, it's pretty much through all through all that stuff. It in uh, in Judeo or in Judaism, animal sacrifice is a big deal. Uh -huh. And um, the only reason that Orthodox Jews don't do it anymore is because uh, technically the temple has to be around, um, and their whole concept is if the temple gets rebuilt then they'll start animal sacrifice again mm -hmm. um, did uh, did your dad grow up in uh, the Jewish faith no my dad, Zimmerman my your dad last name is Zimmerman up. yeah you know it's weird I mean it actually isn't a real last name uh, it's the name of one of his dads my dad had he's got a whole life story that is fascinating. Yeah, well, we're gonna, I'm yeah. going to get him on the podcast, too. Yeah. Gonna, I'm going to get his whole story. But, uh, Zimmerman's not our, our real last name, but uh, it does, it's German word, and it's a lot of the, like, Judeo-Germanic stuff. It probably comes from that. It means carpenter. Huh. Um, but, no, my dad actually grew up uh, with no faith background at all. Like uh, his entire upbringing is totally devoid of any kind of religious structure yeah. at all. So, you, how long do you spend in India? We were in India for it seems like an eternity, but it wasn't actually that long. I think four months. And do you come back to the states? From no, there? Uh, from India we went to Nepal. We were traveling with two different families and the mother of the second family was pregnant. So we had to figure out a place to have the baby. It was going to be southern India. And then they changed their minds. And we went to Pokhara, Nepal. Mm -hmm. And the baby was born there, basically at the foothills of the Himalayas. So how does that work for that baby? Is it Nepalese? It has the, uh, I actually know that, that kid. She's a big fan of our band, actually, now. It's so weird. Yeah. She's like a, a living marker of our trip, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but she, I believe the way that it works is she has dual citizenship and the, has to choose when she's 18, I oh, believe is the way that it works, weird, which right? uh, one of their kids was born in Guatemala, and that's how it worked for them, too. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and then you kind of have to 
do a whole, I don't know if they make you sign Speaking of where way. people are born at, some, uh, some military general is going to get court-martialed because he wouldn't um, go to Afghanistan. He, 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 he's like a 25-year veteran. Yeah. And he said in this Yahoo article that he's not going because he doesn't know if Obama was born in the United States. Oh, that he does, well, he doesn't even believe Obama was yeah. born here in the United States. And that, that alone, that's his yeah. choice to not go to Afghanistan. That's not true. because it's, it's a, a criminal war, not because yeah. it's uh, murdering innocent civilians, but because sure. Obama wasn't born. And he, so he's not sure he's allowed oh, to be the president. Man. That's what these the 25-year army veterans, military veterans. <laughs> so you go you go to Nepal, which is Nepal. another sort of tumultuous place, right? Yeah. Well, what's what's weird is when we were there, it was like experiencing some of its best years, uh -huh. which that's in context of the country. So it was still actually while we were there, one of the poorest countries in Asia, which is a uh, sobering concept. Right. All my friends they couldn't afford to eat rice on a daily basis. So they ate, I forget the name, the term for this uh, concoction, but it's flour mixed with water. And that's what they ate almost every day. Uh, they would have rice for kind of special occasions. The difficult thing, thing about uh, Nepal is one of those places to do any kind of long-term work there, you have to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and they also make you pay to volunteer and to is help that the people so that there. you can get the connection to the people? Um, well, they're... Nepal was closed to the West for years and years and years, and it was only like 50 years before we were there that it got opened to any foreigners coming in. <clears throat> so they're just ultra protective. That's where all the monks are, right? All like the, the uh, mo many the Tibetans have have fled there, and yeah, there's a ton of monasteries. Yeah. It's real similar. It's right up by Tibet, and uh, oh, it was it's Tibet real. That was having the but uh, since we left Nepal everything went crazy and at one point there was a coup the people took over Kathmandu um, the one of the princes in the royal family shot like nine members of the royal family and um, then killed himself it's pretty gnarly and we could see it coming though because when you're there it's like the, the west was giving ridiculous amounts of aid to the country and the royal family was taking all of it yeah. even the food which is fucked up because they weren't just like stealing the money that was supposed to be for the people. They were taking the food even though they had almost no use for it yeah. and just letting it rot because they could keep the people with the thumb In on control. them. Yeah. And at, at some point, the people just had enough and took over Kathmandu. It's still pretty dicey there, but uh, while we were there, it was not as tumultuous. And so, I mean, that's got to be a big change too because I know, I mean, I've never been to India, but I know from like, documentaries or films or whatever like it, like let's say you're getting on the train people are kind of pushy and like there's not a very um, large respect for your personal yeah. space right like people are in your in your in your shit right yeah, well, but then I hard. it seems like maybe people from Nepal might be a little more respectful of personal space there's a there's that sort of shyness that's in yeah. the Asian culture yeah, I don't know why. I don't Personality know. Personality between people, yeah. you know, where like in India they're like, I don't give a fuck. I'm exactly. Give a fuck. I don't know where the or why there's the distinction because they're so close together, and um, but yeah, Nepal is is not as bad as as India for sure. Like in India, the trains get so packed, people are hanging off out of them and, and on the roof. And my brother was up in this little little thing actually wedged between bags because that was the only place he could be. And so he's he's uh, like 15. 
and full-grown adults are grabbing his legs, trying to pull him out of there to get in his seat. Like, that's how gnarly it gets. Uh, and he was basically having to, like, kick people off. Um, and so, yeah, it, it gets past, like, disrespectful to, like... And that's the weird thing about India that I learned really early on of being that young was, like, you kind of have to fight for your place in anything in that, in that environment. And um, you don't get handed anything at all. And so that kind of got stuck in my head in this sense of there's a lot of people in the world and um, you don't really mean that much when, you know, when the chips are down. Like, yeah. you got to got to kind of make a place. Well, it's kind of humbling, right? Extremely, yeah. Especially at that young of an age. Yeah. And, just, and to see that, that uh, the overarching feeling in India is just a complete, like, lack of care about humanity in a lot of different ways. It comes out in different ways. And so to, to feel that at such a young age was, it got tough being in the arts. Like, you kind of, you really probably understand this interior struggle a lot, which is, you have to value your own ideas to, a, to an extent to take them like as far as saying, come look at my work or to expect someone to buy it or... or yeah, well, just to share an opinion and to yeah. share that strong of an opinion. Or it was hard. It took years because in my head it kept being this thing of like, there's, you know, seven billion people in the world. Well, that's an interesting point, too, right, about, like, the caste system and, like, people being told they're worthless, yeah. right? So if you're told you're worthless every day, you really don't really give much of a shit about yeah. yourself. So how, how can you ever expect to give a shit about anybody else or to care at all? And it's so ingrained. We lived with these guys down in the South, and a lot of it, uh, a lot of the ways that they tell which, part, which caste you're in are by your last name. So we were saying, like, why don't, typical American thinking, you know, we're like, why don't you move to a different city, change your name, and do something different, you know, like change whatever. And they're like, what are you talking about? There's no, there's no concept of that. They're like, you yeah. can't do that. And in our minds, it's like, that seems so easy. You're in this cast because of your last name. Just go and, and yeah. change it, start a new life. It's a very like American, cycle, right? yeah. So your family grew up here, you grew up here, your kids yeah. are gonna grow up here. And it's weird if you, you know, and you talk, you know, we're kind of mentioning these religious things. That was one of the main reasons we were over there, and it's an interesting thing because that's why the South is the way that it is. In uh, yeah, twelve guys hung out with Jesus primarily for most of his time, three years that he was really active. They then split up when he got killed, went all over. The guy who was known in Western circles as Doubting Thomas went to Southern India, Didymus. And he uh, traveled around till he got crucified, basically, in, uh, in Madras, somewhere in Madras, I think. But because he did that, Southern India started to get fractured out of Hinduism really early. Well, it's funny and you say Western that. Western explorers came there, too. For the film, Mike gave me uh, the Gospels of Thomas. Uh, uh, well, he gave me a book to, re to read on the airplane ride back, and it was just little snippets of, of his Gospels. Uh, with, uh, on each page, there would be a calligraphy that the guy who put the whole book together would do. And you could tell, you can hear that early Buddhist Hindu yeah. philosophies coming through. Particularly, I mean, you hear it a lot in a lot of 
the scriptures, sure. yeah. but particularly in that in the Thomas yeah. one. Like, and, it, and it's it, interesting. So, southern India. That's partly why it is the way that it is. Most of Kerala, for instance, has like the lowest infant mortality rate out of all of India, the highest literacy rate, and a lot of the people that you'll meet in Western countries came from the south, because once the caste system kind of gets broken, and they, the, uh, the quote-unquote kind of Christianity that's practiced in the south is really strange. It doesn't look like anything that we see over here. It's, it's a blend of the, the native, like, animistic uh, religious things, a lot of ritualism, a lot of symbolism. And that's what we see throughout history yeah. is the way religions mold into yeah. one another but to, what's, to fit cultures. What's weird about that region is the best thing that that outside influence did was get them out of that caste system mindset. Yeah. Now it's, it's kind of unfortunate because they're really fractured. Um, but, and they... Uh, a lot of my friends down there are losing kind of their cultural identity and connection. But just getting out from under the caste system gives the whole region a really interesting feel, which is more of that feeling of like we can actually make things better. And in the north, it, you don't get that feeling at all. Really interesting. So let's talk about that then. Like uh, you get these experiences in these other countries and you, you get a, a sense, and I'm sure particularly in India with the way people are kind of stuck in a place, is the importance of of family and the the that uh, communal structure that gets yeah. built within the, these sorts of uh, malnourished communities or whatever. And we, we notice that, like in our Western society, the more we build suburbs and get further away from our working places and our traveling, and the the more diluted the the family culture. Um, becomes, and we were kind of talking about how, like, when old people get sick, they just go away somewhere. It's not like you don't see the death right there. And um, do you think you got a, a stronger appreciation for those communal aspects being yeah. in those those places? Uh, yeah, because uh, you know the yeah the fan. It seems like more money, more problems. You know, like. The, the more affluent, we yeah, exactly. Here. The more affluent our culture gets, the more we get separated from each other, mm-hmm. in like a personal sense. And so it's like the, and the more post-industrial we've gotten, and so, almost in every other country that I've visited, the family unit is so much bigger of a deal. It's what keeps, you know, it's it's a, a small microcosm of society. And in a sense, like you can trace that from right at the ground level up to how the society functions, yeah. you know, on like a bigger level. And we still see it here, you know, with Indian families and yeah. like Arab families or let's say like Filipinos or yeah. something. They're always sticking together. But the disconnection from the way that the Western world tries to sweep our kind of humanity under the rug causes a lot of problems in my, in my opinion. You because think that has uh, to do with that idea that we talked about growing up, like you can be whatever you want, you can get rich. Yeah, in a way, and it also has to do with the with the denial. Like we're actively pursuing denial. People want to, like like reality television. Just in saying the name of that genre of entertainment, it's ridiculous. Like people <laughs> want to sit on a couch and eat Cheetos and watch someone else live hypothetically 
and like, oh, oh man, t t in this episode they go to the grocery store and something crazy happens. <laughs> and you're like, or in this episode the siblings are having an argument. And they're not actually, not actually living for themselves. But uh, that's kind of a tangent, that's a different thing. But like uh, the I disconnection. Totally play devil's advocate on the other side of that argument, but we'll let it go. But at some point, though, <laughs> well, yeah, we could get into that. Like, at some point, I think it'll flip back around and it'll get Roman, where you're like, I just want to see someone get killed. Well, you know, that's a that's a that's a, a frame of thought for a lot yeah. of people, right? That that we're seeing uh, the fall of Rome or or the fall of Greece, you know, with the gluttonous, uh, you know. Gr like the greed and you know just laying around and getting fat and not not being tough and surviving in what is a pretty tough world we see it when we get to these places where we just become sort of weak right because we don't have to we don't have to fight to get food we just go to the grocery store and we can get whatever the fuck we want we don't have to worry about survival typically besides getting in a car accident or you know it's a, for the most part like life is really fucking easy. So what happens when you get bored and and yeah. things become too easy? You you sort of That's degrade, kind of the, right? Yeah, the lack of connection thing that I was thinking about. Uh, in my mind, after seeing a lot of stuff overseas, I start to get saddened by the by the disconnect. So, you know, you take people away when they get ill because you don't want to face death. That's a natural human kind of thing, uh -huh. but in the facing of it, in the like walking it out, walking it out with your grandmother, then your then your parents, then your you know, in the same home unit, and then keeping that around. In many other cultures, they honor the dead in way different ways than we do, yeah. um, and they keep that presence kind of around and apart, and it, it ends up informing your whole life cycle. Uh -huh. You keep the knowledge that you're going to be that pile of bones someday, yeah. and it kind of changes how you how you act. And that's how we do things in in the states in so many ways. Is like we want to hide it. We want to hide sex. We were talking about earlier, you know, about the difference between sex and violence on TV. Mm -hmm. We do similar things with death. We want to hide death and disease. We want to hide uh, the darker natures of man. We want to hide sexuality. Uh, Want to hide conflict and keep it all all surface, you know. And so I really think uh, I think the same thing about you know like being a vegetarian. I think the same thing about meat. If people, I think it'd be a healthier food chain system if people raised and killed their own meat like they yeah. did, you know, a hundred years ago. Yeah. They'd have a better respect for it, number one, and they'd also have more of a connection to the process. Yeah. Um, and you know uh, that that's an interesting point though too is like the reward systems that we get and I think you know you're talking about reality TV and, and those sorts of things and like people just want to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and watch somebody else's life and you know really that that gets to a point where people are just complacent with life in general and and really have no sort of creative physical or um, mental outlet, right? To let out the stresses of their day-to-day -day lives because they're not doing the things they're supposed to be doing. So they, instead they go sit on the couch and, and eat Cheetos and drink soda because it hits all those brain receptors of pleasure, right? Sure. Like, like this makes me feel good. 
and then you relate that feeling good to this silly fucking yeah. show that you're watching. It makes you feel decent about yourself yeah. so that while you're at your shitty job listening to your shitty boss give you a shitty paycheck, you know, you'd be thinking about the fucking Cheetos yeah. on the couch. Yeah. The couch, right? It's the same deal. It's that age-old philosophical question about the pleasure button. If you had a button that could satisfy that pleasure need, would you choose to have it and use it whenever you wanted? And the way that people answer says a lot about their philosophy, their worldview. To me, like, I'd answer like unequivocally no. Because to me, the part of the point of pleasure is all the shit you go through to get it. And it doesn't have the same payoff if you just have it at the Well, touch let, of let's button. relate that to music then. Well, let, let's relate that to music then. Do you want to, should we take a pause and then yeah, move into music? Next thing, I, I'll I have a... I so little chance to like, have conversations anymore than once I sit down. Dude, that's part of why I'm doing this too, because like, to be able to sit down and have a conversation in, with somebody, yeah. like especially being in the creative field, right? Do you want to record? Are you recording? So being in the creative field, we spend a lot of time by ourselves writing or, or working or figuring out how to make, make the music or make yeah. the painting or whatever, that we lose out on these like philosophical or intellectual conversations about life and other people's yeah. uh, uh, realities, right? Because we never can fully understand each other's experience. But if we sit down and talk about it, I can get as close as I possibly can to understanding your experience. You know, maybe I'll learn something from you that'll that'll help dictate my personal experience or, or what have you. Yeah, that's one thing that I get bummed out about. I love, I love and hate shows for the same reason. I love them because it's a chance to get a bunch of people that are friends or acquaintances together and see them all. Yeah. But I hate them for the reason that by nature of the beast, it's basically impossible to have a real conversation with anyone. <laughs> yeah. And so I hate that when it happens at a show, yeah. it's like, ah, oh, I see so many people that I want to like, let's dig into some issue and talk about it. Yeah. And all I can say is, hey, it's good to see you. Did I you hear me talk you. about how I, I, I don't like going to concerts? No, I didn't, no. I would really... I got to hear the beginning of that. I would yeah. love to go to a concert and me be the only person there. Yeah. Like, I, <laughs> like I would love to go to the Casbah and just sit a chair down in yeah. the middle of the room and have nobody bother me and just let me listen That's to the music for... The world. Yeah. It would be such an awesome place. <laughs> It'd be boring as fuck, yeah. but... Yeah. Well, not for me, but in, yeah. that, in that yeah. setting, but if there was nobody else exactly. in the world, it could get boring. But um, we were talking about the pleasure principle, right? Um, before and I think that part of the creative process in making art is hitting that that pleasure point um, I, I talk a lot about how how the creative process is meditative and in that meditative state we get some reward right some built-in reward system that is saying here thanks for doing that for my brain uh, here's a little dopamine or you know <laughs> some, something happens so what kind of um, what kind of rewards do you get from from making music? Like, uh, let's say, like, I got. I remember, for instance, uh, when we first started working together, you uh, you gave me a shout out on stage at the 91X festival oh, yeah, thing. Yeah. Not the last one, but the year yeah, before. Yeah. What was that show called? Oh, the the 949 Independence. The 94. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I said 91X. What a cock. <laughs> That's okay. uh, 
And you gave me a shout out, right? And said my name, and people clap. And like that was one of the great, like a crowd clapping yeah. for me, even though none of them knew who the fuck I was. Like that was like amazing. I was like, holy shit, this yeah. is awesome. I wanted well, to do this every time. Like you're saying about the dopamine, that's one of them right there. Yeah. You almost can't control it. And I think that's why addiction is so prevalent in the music industry. Because well, because so we were talking about pleasure, right? Yeah. Like, why is it creative people are always hitting that button, yeah. right? That and, and that what what ends up happening. There's a great lyric in a Rilo Kylie song that is so real and 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 uh, describes the reality of of life for performers so much. And it says, uh, you know, it's saying talk about life doing the performance thing, and it says uh, sometimes when you're on, you're really fucking on, and your friends all sing along and they love you. But the lows are so extreme that the good seems fucking cheap, and it teases you for weeks in its absence. Yeah. And that's how it is. And I, I really feel that with a lot of musicians, the space in between the shows, in between the highs, starts to get so low yeah. that in a lot of ways you're like heroin's trying to even it out. You know, or yeah. blows like trying to even it out, so and it's all, not so. And all creative types are like that, cause it's it's like yeah. that for me. So after three months of working on an art show, I have a show, and everyone's all, yeah, yeah. you're great, this. And then you go back to the hotel or back to the house, and, and it's just you out. and your thoughts, right? Yeah. So that's a, there's a weird roller coaster in that. I and I hear that a lot with comedians. Yeah. You know, you go blow a club up for two hours where everyone's just laughing at you, yeah. then you're going and sitting in some lonely hotel yeah. room by yourself. Yeah, in a way, like, it's so much worse for them because they're just the solo guy. In a way, it's like a saving grace to be in a band because at least you've got those guys around. Uh -huh. But I try to prepare for it now because I've uh, been, like, doing it so much. I try to prepare for it. I go, like, okay, I know these certain big shows are going to be this big high, and I have to be ready for the the flip side uh -huh. so like I have to like come down naturally in my head and, and not get freaked out yeah. to go like okay this is happening for a reason because I'm like coming back to normal zone you know and um, I think a lot of people maybe aren't self-analytical enough to go through that process or whatever so they go like straight to uh, substances yeah. for me though that's one of the big rewards obviously just because you can't escape it uh -huh. I don't think that that like straight chemical explosion from people clapping and whatever. It's like you can't even control the fact that, that gets addictive in a way. But then there's got to be something but completely, or maybe not completely separate yeah. from making, let's say, from writing music or writing lyrics, right? Like the actual writing like, process? I love writing. Lyric writing is one of the only parts of the whole musical process that I don't find really frustrating. And that's a, a zone that I really love. The rest of it, I don't have the musical knowledge to match the, the amount of productivity that I want to have. So the entire process of recording and writing the music is extreme frustration for me. Yeah. Um, the writing of the lyrics I love because it's storytelling. And that's something that's always free, been right? really important. There's yeah. No, there's no sort of yeah. outside influence saying you can't do this. And it's that solitary thing they were talking about. You know, that's you alone with your thoughts, yeah. and that's where you get to chisel them and sh and shine them and and figure out what you want to say. You know. Yeah. But then, so that's its own reward. That's a like a reward in the process. The same way that constructing the painting, you're learning. You know, like you're learning things about yourself and about the medium and about all these other things. And so there's like the process reward. Well, that's, I say all the time that, you know, I gain all my wealth, my wealth in the process of making the yeah. work, 
right? And everything that help that happens afterwards is all a profit. It's all bonus. Yeah. You know, so so I'm already wealthy beyond yeah. my wildest dreams, even though I'm poor. Yeah. But there's all this other sort. It, it depends on what you define as wealth, right? So that's one of the biggest rewards. The other one to me is really performance, because we were talking earlier about the ability to purge some of your mental difficulties and stuff, almost in like a therapeutic way. Uh -huh. I think of every performance is like catharsis. And there's, I'm like a, a high-strung individual, and I'm also uh, frustrated with the world and all of these things. And so every night of a tour or every night of a show, I get to just open this pressure valve and let all of that out. Yeah. And by the end of a show, I feel cleansed in some way. And if I didn't have that thing, I would really be uh, kind of concern for like my mental yeah you might be eating cheetos and watching uh yeah. reality television or worse or you or go the other direction you know but i really feel like if you don't have that i've talked to it with friends of mine about it with friends of mine who were musicians and or any kind of performer and then stop and all this stuff starts to get bottled up yeah. because you're used to the release and um had an interesting we're going through kind of getting more involved in the in industry side of it. And one of the executives asked me a question of like, can you actually pull off that performance every night on a tour? Yeah. Like, do you have, can you reach in and access those things every night and keep it real and keep it fresh? And I was telling him like, for sure, because every day of a tour is so hard and so frustrating yeah, that yeah. all that stuff is getting replenished every single day. Yeah. And so you go on stage and it's like, I'm pissed off that we got a flat tire, you know, and, and you pull out all those things and there's enough angst to keep the train rolling, you know. All right, so um, let's talk about the bands that you've been in. Yeah, let's, let's, let's work our way up to how you got to the silent comedy. Yeah, uh, my brother's thing was always music and he's naturally, innately gifted for it. Yeah, pretty and much a genius, right? Yeah, he could... Uh, I used to have to take lessons. He would take me to the lessons, like walk me there because I was a little kid. And he would then pick up instruments in the store and start playing them while I was in the lessons. And people would come and be like, how long have you played that? And he'd be like, 20 minutes. You know, and that's just how he is. Yeah. So I tried to stay away from it. And I actually wanted to be a visual artist my whole thing growing up um, because I didn't want to be compared to him. So I tried to not learn music. like. Force, forcibly, so you know. Too, even though you guys are now in the same band, yeah. your styles are very distinctively different. Totally. When it comes to your each own totally. thing. And so it ended up, um, I learned to play the bass a little bit. And then uh, obviously, like, we were grew up as pastor's kids. And that's where a lot of musicians are coming from now. I, I talk to people about it all the time. It's that performance, right? Yeah. It's the performance thing. And as, as arts funding gets cut more in the public sector, uh, it's one of the places where you naturally get taught to play instruments, especially right. if you're a pastor's kids. I mean, the Kings of Leon guys are all pastor's kids. Mumford and Sons guys, pastor's kid. Um, even people you wouldn't expect. Marilyn Manson comes from the church world. And so it's one of the places you can learn to play an instrument for free, basically. And you get thrown right into it because of the need, and whether you like it or not, really, <laughs> yeah, if you're yeah. a pastor's kid. You got kid. your role you have to play, yeah. right? And so that's where I learned to play music. Um, 
And then we went around the world and we were pretty disconnected from it for a while because we didn't have any possessions. My brother kept playing all around the world, any instrument he could find. Um, we got back to the States and one of the only possessions we had was a piano someone gave back to us that we had sold to them. So he started writing a lot more songs because we didn't even have chairs to sit in in our house for probably almost a year. Yeah, or plates to eat off of that we didn't bring from India. Yeah, this is you. By the, you're back in San Diego. Yeah, we're back. We uh, we traveled all around the states after we got back in the country looking for a place to live, and we settled on San Diego. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have any possessions really, just the piano and a lawn chair. That was our big seating accommodation. And so he started writing music as a uh, coping mechanism, largely for how depressing life was at the moment, you know. And he was. Uh, 17 by this point so he was really uh, he also he started tanks, yeah right. he also started working full-time to help us be able to we know we had no money and um, by the time we got a little bit of money like any kind of spendable income at all my dad bought me a bass and my brother and I started writing stuff together and then we were in loose kind of bands together then we started a band called Dare Dune named after city in India, uh -huh. the one in which we had to barricade ourselves in the hotel yeah, to not yeah. get killed. And that and, stuff uh, was, was much different than the yeah. work that you're doing now. Yeah, it was like, I, I compare it to like Mars Volta-ish. It had a lot of influence from Radiohead and Mars Volta and uh, at the drive-in, post-punk kind of stuff. And my brother and the guitar player were really music theory nerds. So they really started almost getting like prog directions because they nerd out on music. Yeah. And so it was way different. And I just played bass, but I, because uh, I'm not that good of a bass player, I just started to feel it. And then my performance ended up getting real crazy because of just like feeling it. And my brother is not really that way. So he started to try to push for me to do frontman kind of stuff yeah. in the band. And I wasn't comfortable with that at all because like, so that wasn't I looked up to, to him. With? No, yeah, no. And so in Daredevil, I just played bass and I tried to stay away from that. We ended up losing some members and then he really pushed it. He wanted to then just switch the whole band around to where he did the music side and I did the, the singing and the frontman thing. Mm -hmm. And right around that time, a little before, our, our guitar player was really tough to deal with in that band. So I told my brother, like, as a therapeutic measure let's write like folk songs and stuff and just start recording them so that we can kind of lighten up and do yeah. it just for fun and not have to deal with the guitarist you know and, uh, <laughs> and so I, we still don't have like a, a lead guitar player in our band because we were so fed up with it um, and I told him I'm always coming up with band names and like marketing ideas because that's where my brain is at a lot I was like, we should just call it the silent comedy. So we have a name to call it. And we'll just use all our musician friends. We'll have no lineup, so you can't break up. We'll just <laughs> have random musicians all the time. And um, that's how that started. And we weren't even supposed to play shows. We were specifically supposed to not play shows to cut down on the stress level. Mm -hmm. And then I think Justin started playing banjo and mandolin, which he had never played before. Just started for the sake of of doing the band and um, he kind of accidentally committed us to a gig and I was like I was like mad at him at the time I was told him like dude we're not supposed to play shows but we had to do some friends of his a favor 
And the reaction from that first show was just very different than what we'd experienced in other stuff. And every show got more and more. It took on a life of its own. We ended up kind of abandoning the other thing. And we went from being, trying to be folk music, which was my intention in the beginning, but that whole like feeling it thing took over because we used to sit down and play acoustic instruments, uh-huh. and eventually. <laughs> it sounds hilarious for anybody who knows your guys' set. Yeah. With it live shows. Eventually, like, it just totally sounds ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> it snowballed into, you know, breaking instruments on stage uh-huh. and and smashing pint glasses with my knee and like the big wildness. Well, I'll tell you what. Like for me, I don't. I may have had your album. I think I saw you live before I heard any recorded music. That's good. So like I I was in love like right away, you know, from the from that stage presence, from that like transference of yeah. energy yeah, yeah. that you give to crowd. And this is coming from somebody who doesn't dance and get all crazy and like I don't perform with the performance. Yeah. Like I sit down and try to take the performance into my head and keep it there. Yeah. You know, and that's not to say that there's anything wrong with other people having yeah. fun and doing their thing at a show. But like I grab that energy right away. Like and I'm I'm typically like kind of I don't I don't like something right away. Usually it takes me a little while to get used to something before I like it and I, I right away just like fell in love. So I, it, it's funny to hear that side, like, yeah. that it was just sit down, because, like, it's literally, crazy. you guys are all over the stage. Yeah, and that's kind of the, that's that reward thing we are talking about, too, is, like, another thing I get out of the deal. I care about performance head and shoulders above, uh, above recording and music, and it shows in the band, unfortunately. We're trying to switch it around enough to where the recordings at least sound good, <laughs> but, uh, I care about the performance part because of that energy transfer, because yeah. we're talking about, and in some way, and I have a particular, you know, like, worldview, and so it plays into that, but in some way we're tapping into a, a power source that is hard to wrap your head around. And yeah. things happen at shows sometimes, too, where all of a sudden you go, and, and I'm not leading it. And, and people, like, will t- ask me a lot about that, like, what is it like to lead it or whatever. I'm not leading it. I'm just... Uh, sometimes going, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Like that's what's going through well, my that's head. That, that's that pure creative phase, yeah. right? Like, and then people get on that same page, and then they're, however they're reacting, even, you know, they don't have to be dancing or whatever, yeah. but they're becoming a part of it, yeah. and then it's going, it's like a laser, you know? It's, it keeps bouncing back and forth and gets powerful. Yeah. And um, There's something about cool. that in music that you don't really find in a lot of other art forms. Yeah. Like, and what we learned growing up was my parents would take us to uh, like all black Pentecostal churches when we were young because we never have had any money. So, you, you know, can't go to the movies all the time. <laughs> so they would take us there and, uh, and it's an experience. And they took us there for an experience of like, this is something you should see. And that's how it is. They'll burst into song in the middle of preaching uh-huh. and then go for an hour and then come back to preaching and then spontaneously and people are jumping around and going crazy and uh, that got deep like in my head and I think now as we moved in I think it was Janet Reno that proclaimed that America is in the uh, the post-Christian era I think it was the she was one of the people who from a political standpoint uh, proclaimed that Uh, but as we get into this point where you know there were generations where everyone went to church Mm -hmm. by and large you know let's say like 60% of the of the country 
and they got a certain connection of this communal singing, which is a, an interesting phenomenon, yeah. and uh, of the gathering together of people just under a roof to do well, this thing. What's interesting about that, and we, and we talk about, what, and it kind of ties into what we were talking about, the communal aspects of, of us living in these communities where we're separating ourselves further and further away from one another. And there's something in, in having uh, a, a congregation, right, mm-hmm. that uh, people form uh, communities within that group based on the idea that they're all thinking about the same thing. And I noticed something uh, before in my neighborhood uh, during the really bad cedar fires that we had in, in Crest. And I don't know if I've talked about this for the documentary yet or not, but... Um, I walked into a grocery store, you know, a store that's a mile away from this raging fire. I walked in and I could tell every single person in the store was thinking about that fire. And in that process of everybody thinking about a fire, it built this really strange brotherhood, this really strange community of people who were all thinking about the same thing and it brought together this sense of um, love and trust for one another that wasn't there normally. If you just walked into a grocery store, people would be minding their own business, doing their own thing. But there was a a compassion towards one another that I literally physically felt going into this place. Check back soon for uh, part two of this interview.